Most human beings speak several thousand words a day, maybe 7,000, maybe some of us up to 20,000. So it does make sense that in this practical book of wisdom called James, that our use of the human language would be addressed. So listen today for the wisdom from the book of James about the power of our daily words from James chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of the, bee, of the beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. May God bless this reading to our understanding. When my granddaughter Ava was around four years old, she loved jokes. Somebody would tell a joke in her presence and she would just laugh hysterically, but Ava had not yet mastered the art of joke telling. So one day I tried to teach her how to tell a joke. We were on a family trip and her dad was pumping gas into the car and Ava was seated in her car seat and I was sitting inside the car with her and I said, Ava, I'm gonna teach you how to tell a joke. Let's do this one. What do you call a seagull that lives by the bay? A bagel. So Ava practiced it. She practiced the beginning. She practiced the punchline. She had it down pat. And then her dad got back in the car and started up the ignition. And she said, Daddy, what do you call a seagull that lives by the bay? And he said, I don't know, Ava, what do you call a seagull that lives by the bay? And she froze. She could not remember the punchline. And so she just sat there, and then I looked at her, and she goes, um, a donut. <laughs> well, her version in our family became better than the original joke. But the point is that words are really images in our minds. 
And for Ava, at age four, a round piece of bread with a hole in the middle was not a bagel. It was clearly a donut. Professor Wayne Stacy wrote an article about the power of words, and he said that the mind is like an art gallery with pictures hanging on the wall, and underneath each picture in the art gallery is a little plaque with a word on it that goes with the picture. And so if the professor says, book, you do not picture in your mind the letters B-O-O-K. No, your mind goes to the image of a leather-bound volume sitting on the desk. So let's do a test. I'll say a word, and you see what image pops into your mind. Jayhawk. Country Club. Uvalde. Top Gun. Well, today's scripture from James sounds an alarm about the destructive power of our words. Now, several months ago, when Mike and I just first decided that we would preach a summer sermon series on the book of James, I knew one of us had to cover this particular section because every single one of us struggles with this issue of when to speak and when to hold the tongue. But instantly, when I read James's advice, I had two problems. One is, I don't really know how to solve this. Uh, oh, really? I mean, Dave and I, my husband and I, we, we taught couple communication dozens of times. I have the workbook memorized. I can tell you all the steps. But when I am really angry with my husband, every single lesson that I taught in couple communication flies out the window of my mind, and I can snap. And just like that, I can spew out venomous words in the snarkiest tone that you would not want to hear your pastor use. How do we tame the tongue. As parents, we all say things to our kids that we hope they will remember forever, but instead, our kids seem to remember the things that we said that we so wish they would have forgotten. My friend remembers her mom saying, yeah, I probably should have stopped after three kids, and my friend was the fourth kid. And it's been 50 years since mom said that, and she still feels the sting of it. My sister will never forget her then-husband's words, I've been seeing another woman for two years. Words destroy. My husband remembers when he was in the sixth grade. One night, he got up out of bed, told his mom and dad, I can't sleep. It's it's hot, I'm worried, I'm tossing, I'm turning, I don't know what to do. And his dad set him down and said, David, my father, your grandfather, also used to have trouble sleeping at night. And he once told me that when you get ready for bed at night, your troubles come off with your pants. And so my husband was able to go back to bed, and some 60 years later, he still remembers that bit of wisdom now, my mom, she was not really like the other moms. She was a much better cook, 
a much better seamstress, much better at making costumes than any of the other moms. She was an amazing teacher. But my mom was not the kind of mom who said those gushy things to her daughter like I heard other moms saying to their daughters, things like, oh, I'm so proud of you, sweetie. I just love you so much. I just am amazed by you. No, mm -mm, that was not my mom's style, not at all. And so one day when I was kind of a preteen, maybe fifth or sixth grade, we went somewhere and we ended up running into the secretary who was the school secretary at the school where my mom taught. When I met her, she looked at me and she said, I'm so excited to finally meet you because your mom talks about you all the time. She's always going on and on and on about how well you did at the piano recital or the dance recital or your great report card. She's so proud of you. She so adores you. And I remember walking away from that conversation and thinking, hmm, maybe my mom does like me after all. Now, I know it seems silly now, but a kid needs to hear words. We all need to hear certain words. Spouses, friends, bosses, employees, we all hunger to hear particular words, but none of us is all that good at saying all the right words at all the right times. And so many of us spew out the wrong words at the wrong time with our boss, at home with the next door neighbor, and inside the walls of our own homes. Is there any cure for the tongue's toxicity? Well, the second problem I have with this passage from James is that I can't quite figure out how it fits in the Bible. And I'm actually in good company here because Martin Luther, the great priest and Protestant reformer, questioned whether or not the whole book of James even belonged in our Bible. When I read James's advice about taming our tongues, it seems to me like it would make a really good speech at the Rotary Club. You know, a good secular message about how we can use our words with kindness. But where is the gospel good news? Where is the hopeful, forgiving message of God here? It just feels heavy and bleak. James sets an incredibly high bar about how we can use our own tongues. And it reminds me of this scene in one of Ann Tyler's novels. It's, it's the novel called Saint Maybe. And in that novel, there's a character named Ian. Ian is quite suspicious. He suspects that his sister-in-law is having an affair and betraying Ian's brother. Actually, Ian is wrong about the facts. But he tells his brother about the affair anyway. And Ian's brother is so devastated by this news that he ends his own life. When Ian realizes that his brother is gone because of his erroneous words, he is racked with guilt. He says in the novel in a prayer, Oh God, how long will I have to pay for a handful of tossed off words? Can't we just back up and start over? Couldn't I have one more chance? But James seems to think that even though we all make mistakes, 
We shouldn't. He writes, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, he says, this ought not to be so. And then James uses this metaphor of a spring of water, a fresh spring. And he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? This image of the spring reminds me of a time when Dave and I were on sabbatical in France. Our friends who lived in this region told us that we really had to go to this place called the Fountain of Vaucluse. We went and spent the day there, but it didn't seem all that extraordinary to us. I mean, it was just this beautiful little freshwater stream. We walked along it for miles. There were some pretty trees and a few ice cream shops, but we couldn't quite get why we needed to visit there until we got to the very end. And there it was, the mouth of the spring, the fifth largest freshwater spring in the world. Not so much a fountain as it was like a cave, a hollow in the ground where this beautiful water was coming up out of the ground from such depths that they had never been able to find the source of the spring. And I think maybe James wants us to look in that place at the source of the freshwater spring because what is that the source influences what flows out of us, what we speak and what we fail to speak. You know, in the Gospel of John, the character of Jesus is not introduced to us as a baby Jesus in a stable with angels singing and shepherds visiting and wise ones bringing gifts. The Gospel of John introduces Jesus like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the introduction. Jesus is the Word of God. God came to dwell in human life, in human persons, but not just in the person of Jesus. God came to dwell in all of human life. James wants us to remember that our very source is God. James calls upon us to reflect on who we are at the deepest part of ourself, what transformative work is needed at the core of each of our lives. If our hearts are filled with the tender love of God, then we will not be spewing out destructive messages with our tongues. The brackish water does not come from the freshwater spring. Well, that's all a bit heady, I know, and so let me try to tell it with a story. I rewatched this movie recently, the movie Just Mercy. Actually, I saw it on an airplane, and, and I was so gripped by this one scene in the movie Just Mercy that I went back to the book Just Mercy and reread the scene. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've seen the movie. It's a true story. Brian Stevenson is a black man, a young black man from the Deep South who goes to Harvard Law School. And when he goes as a student to Harvard Law School, he has never met a lawyer. In the summer, he does an internship 
back in the South with an organization that is working with men on death row who claim to be wrongfully convicted. Brian, at the beginning of that summer, is nervous. He's unsure of himself, and he goes to see a client named Henry who is behind bars on death row. Brian walks into the cell. The doors close. He stumbles around awkwardly, explaining, you know, I'm not a real lawyer. In fact, I haven't even finished law school, but I do have a few updates on your case. Brian, the lawyer, and Henry, the client, talk about Henry's trial, Henry's alibi, the witnesses. And after they cover all the businesses that they have to cover, the two men begin to relax, and they begin talking about their histories, their love of music, where they grew up, their families, and they discover that both of them grew up singing in the church choir as children. When the guard comes and says it's time for Henry to go back to his prison cell, he stands up. His feet are shackled. The guard way too tightly handcuffs Henry's hands. He roughly pushes Henry towards the door, and Brian stands up to protest, but Henry shakes his head, no, trying to get Brian to back off. But then Henry begins shuffling his feet, moving back towards his cell, and he breaks into song. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining, he sings every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And Brian recognizes the song because he sang the same song in the church choir. And so as his client walks away, he sings along on the chorus. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's tableland, a higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Brian is completely stunned for what he heard was the source of the man's life. He writes, Henry's voice was filled with desire and I experienced his song as a precious gift. He heard in Henry's words the sound of redemption, the sound of hope. Humanity can speak God's word the word of God can resound in human flesh, and James will not accept anything less from you or from me. James wants us to look back at the source of all life, the divine one, the one we name God. The word of God can be revealed in our words. What matters, you see, is what hangs in the art gallery of our own souls. That is what shapes our speech. That is what moves our tongue. So what will you answer? What do you call a seagull that lives by the bay?